0: lifestyle choices, and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson.
1: We've got a great show for you today. It's It's a subject matter that I think we're all starting to think more about since we're becoming the world is opening up more. I've got Dr. Dwayna Welch, and she's the original Love Factually author and coach. She's known for using social science to solve real life relationship issues. She has taught at universities in Florida, California, and Texas over 20 years and contributes to NPR, PBS, Psychology Today, as well as other podcasts and videos. Her first book, Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps, from which from I Wish. To i do is now out globally in five languages audio paperback uh, there's seven other love actually titles now out all of Dwayne's books rely on science rather than opinion to help men and women find and keep their right partner and uh, you know that's why i'm so interested in it because the science behind the brain the science behind dating duana thank you so much for joining us today
0: Oh, Leah, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that warm introduction. I'm excited. Well, you know, dating
1: has always been stressful. I mean, you know, we're always looking for Mr. or Mrs. Right, but I think the last year, 2020, has added a whole new level of stress into that equation. Have you seen this impact the dating world?
0: Oh, absolutely. A lot of people felt like and still feel like pandemic's not the time to find a partner, um, I disagree. I actually think that pandemic can be a, a a help rather than a hindrance in clarifying what people want and what they're willing to do to get it. But yes, it's also really clarified for a lot of people. They're tired of being alone, you know, and they're tired of, of dating. Uh, I guess just hoping that things work out. They want a more targeted approach, and that's definitely possible now.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because when you think about dating, I think about, well, what if you're a millennial? dating because they certainly I have several clients in that age group and you know the things that I hear you know expressing love that's a no-no you know and the rules of the threes you wait three days before calling I mean you leave messages make sure they haven't been seen for three minutes I mean that's got to be really different than what dating in the 40s is like or dating someone in the military or even dating a celebrity?
0: Well, you've got a good point that not everybody looks at dating the same way, but because so much of our brain structure and the way that human beings think actually comes from an ancient time, uh, prehistorically times, evolutionary psychology is what I'm talking about. There is a human mating ritual and, um, even with the cultural overlay, there's still a lot more similar than different between different points in history um, than there are uh, among the generations right now. There's there's a really timeless aspect of what brings people together and how to give people the signals that they respond to. So tell me more about that. Well, for example, I, I really enjoyed when you brought up the rule of threes, because, of course, where my brain went was not just, you know, you wait three days before calling But that a lot of people are having sex on the third date. That's kind of been word on the street for a long time now is sex by the third date. And, you know, these are are within the last generation to generation and a half cultural touchstones. But um, they don't necessarily work out all that well for most people most of the time. What people are really looking for is connection. But at the very beginning of making that connection, people want to... Um, know that they are special. And it is hard to feel terribly special if we get sexually involved right away. And I want to give an example of what I mean by that. Um, Men don't fall in love without dopamine. Their, Their levels of dopamine in the brain have to rise and the rise has to be sustained in order for them to fall in love. And what studies are showing is that When men have sex very quickly in a relationship, the usual physiological response is for their dopamine levels to fall. So they may have said they were really into somebody and they thought they could fall in love with her. And then the guy is confused. Why can't I fall in love with her? She's right for me. Why don't I feel more? And that's partly um, a biological thing. It would actually help uh, men and women alike to wait a little while longer, to wait until they feel love before they get sexual to the point of um to be just completely blunt penile vaginal intercourse you know do some things other than that but maybe not by the third date in other words well you know it's lust or love and sometimes i think the lust takes over oh well yeah (laughs) and by the way that can be a lot of fun but for people who are looking for a long-standing relationship it's possible to feel lust and act on it in a more limited way and save the whole enchilada, Uh, you know, full sexual expression for after feelings have developed more fully to the point where you feel like, you know, a lot about this person, you would actually be comfortable talking to them about what you like sexually, what you don't like sexually. Uh, Third date is kind of soon for that. It's funny. A lot of people are, are having, sexual interactions that they don't feel comfortable discussing. And one of the things I talk with my clients about is um, let the actual emotional intimacy lead the sexual intimacy instead of the other way around. I mean, definitely feel the lust, but wait for the love to develop as well. Well, you know, one of the things that I've
1: I've heard from one client, she talks a lot about ghosting is that, you know, they're here today and then it used to, I, I can remember spending hours trying to think of how I was going to say goodbye to somebody that that I no longer felt like that I you know wanted to date. But that just doesn't seem the way they do it now. It's just you're blocked on social media. People stop taking your calls. Um, you know, I think they just expect you to take a hint and move on. And from an emotional standpoint, I think that's very damaging.
0: Oh, you're so right. It you know, it hurts people so much worse to be left wondering why, and things ended, and why they weren't. P- Here's how people feel when they get ghosted: they feel like they weren't even worth saying goodbye to. It's it's just this very worthless feeling, and um, you know, it impresses me that you spent hours thinking about how to say goodbye because that implies that you say goodbye instead of ghosting, which of course is. Uh, the right thing to do is to say goodbye. You know, I, I got really curious about ghosting and there weren't at the time very many studies on the phenomenon. So I decided to do a study on um, how, how people break up with each other and whether they break up. And one of the questions I asked was uh, whether people felt it was appropriate to break up by text or to break up simply by uh, exiting the scene. And uh, people said no. They felt like The thing to do was to break up in person or on the phone. Um, But then when I asked them, have you ever basically ghosted or broken up by text, people admitted that they had. So they didn't want it done to them, but most of them had done it. And when I asked them, well, why did you do it that way? It, It was fear. People were afraid of saying the wrong thing. Um, we're talking about situations where they're not afraid for their life. I mean, obviously, if you're afraid someone's going to physically harm you uh, or be verbally abusive or abusive in some way, then you might really need to ghost them or send them a text message or something like that. But short of that, if, if it's a safe relationship, people strongly preferred the following. This is how they wanted to be broken up with, even though this is not what they did, it's what they wanted they wanted someone to say something really kind to them about uh, having enjoyed meeting them. It depended how long they'd known each other. So it could be say kind things about things that worked in the relationship followed by, but my feelings aren't developing the way that I need them to. It's not a good enough match and I'm going to have to break up. So those were the, the ways. And you know, what's great about that Lee is when, when we say to somebody, I really care a lot about, you. And I really thank you for the good times we had, but my feelings just haven't developed the way that I thought they would and hoped they would. And, um, it's, it's not the match I I need and I'm going to break, I I have to break up. When we say that we have the advantage of always telling the truth, but we are also brief, kind, clear as well as honest. And, And those are the things people respond to the best in a breakup. And, uh, it keeps you from having to say exactly what went wrong. Well, and I think you're
1: right, because what went wrong is all about interpretation. And what I interpreted, you know, we all try to analyze and figure out what went wrong. What did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? And we come up with all different answers. And that's what I really like about your approach is that you look at the science and there's science behind everything we do. And I believe there is between, you know, behind dating. But when I think about someone that's dating someone that's in the military, That's got to be a different dynamic because they're not here all the time.
0: Yeah, you know, I was recently reading some research on long-distance relationships, and it used to be that the research really showed that um, long-distance relationships didn't fare nearly as well as relationships that were conducted where you could see each other every day. There's a little bit of evidence now that that's still true, but it's not necessarily because of the distance, it's because... People need to create ways to feel close within the context of the distance. So, for example, um, you're right. It, it is different with the military because people may be, you know, on a submarine for months at a time or ship for months at a time or there's a lot of adjusting to being apart and then being together. There could be deployments. Um, the military is... My understanding is that they're getting more invested in helping couples with that more because, you know, every divorce that happens, every breakup that happens, it actually causes the loss of productivity and an increase in mistakes at work. Obviously, the military doesn't want that. But things that couples can do that really help include having daily rituals of connection. For example, if they have a tradition that uh, first thing in the morning... if if they're experiencing mourning at the same time or if they're not first thing for one of them in the morning, is that they reach out by text and and send a flirtatious or a loving message. And then that they have some of that connection throughout the day. And hopefully at some point in the evening, they have uh, some kind of face-to-face, if not in person, um, video connection or phone connection. And of course, that's not all always possible, but it's really helpful. There are couples who have movie nights, they read the same books, um, they have virtual dinners together. It's not exactly the same, but there are lots of couples who manage to thrive through those circumstances, as long as those circumstances are not permanent. There does need to be some kind of a shelf life to um, the separation. Well, and and that means there's a lot of
1: work, there's a lot of planning, and there's, it's not as spontaneous as maybe another relationship would be.
0: Yeah, I, I'm so happy you brought up that idea of spontaneity because really effective dating usually does, even if you're in person, if it's effective dating. And by that I mean the emotional connection between the two people deepens over time and they wind up making a commitment that they're both happy with. Effective dating actually requires a lot of planning. So the spontaneity is for once you're actually in each other's presence, maybe you change which which thing you're going to go do. Um, but people feel more secure when they know that I'm going to see you on Friday night and I'm going to see you every Friday night as opposed to it's Thursday and I still don't know whether we're spending time together.
1: I think you're right. And, and I think that we all, we're creatures of habit and we'd like to know what our weekend's going to look at, look like. You know, I ask clients all the time, so uh, it'll be a Thursday, so if you got a big weekend planned, and I can tell when they don't, there's a sense of nervousness. Well, mm, you yeah, know, I'm not sure, uh, and when they do, they speak with more confidence and more happiness in their voice.
0: Absolutely. You know, I really encourage my clients to go ahead if it's three days before the weekend if it's midweek and they and their partner haven't made plans and most of the time people still act act fairly in line with gender roles we can go into why that is but if it's a heterosexual couple if the guy hasn't tried to make some kind of a plan by about tuesday or wednesday i encourage my female clients go ahead and make another plan because otherwise you're living on the edge and you're going to be uncomfortable and Somebody who really values you will make you a priority rather than an option. They will let you know that they want to spend time with you rather than at the last minute. Last minute calls are telling you that you're optional and not not prioritized. That's what they're conveying. So, um, you know and, and it's it's okay to to say if if this person does reach out on Thursday or Friday to for for Friday or Saturday or even for the same day, it's okay to say Um, you know, I would have loved to have seen you, but I I didn't know whether I would hear from you. So I actually already made plans. They'll learn either. Oh, I just wanted somebody to call at the last minute. I'm going to move along or, oh, I want to spend time with this person. I'm going to make a plan. But but again, I think spontaneity is for once you're together. It's not for wondering whether you're going to be together. Right. I agree with you on that.
1: And, you know, I think about the The different times and different cultures and the different ways that we date. Is it different in the States? I and mean, when we talked about how the brain science is, is basically the same behind it and the dopamine. But how did the cultural differences play in? Because in the States, women are, are very aggressive and, and have no, no issues asking a man out. But, uh, you know, in
0: Japan... Is it the same way? Well, that's a great question. So first of all, most women in the United States actually don't feel free to ask a man out. They're very uncomfortable doing so. Um, They're very uncomfortable making the first move. Research shows that um, in the U.S., women do usually make the first move in in in-person interactions in the sense that we tend to make eye contact and smile. And that is the invitation that gets a man to, to come and talk to us. That's, of course, been drastically reduced during pandemic, but you can still use that psychology even online simply by making sure that your your profile shot, your headshot on any dating app or dating website uh, shows you looking directly into the camera and smiling. That, that cue gets read as openness to approach. Well, um, you
1: bring up a really good point, and that is that dating profile, because I have seen... I've had clients share their dating profile with, with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I look at it. And I'm like, I don't know exactly what you're trying to say. You know, I don't know what your message is. Is there science behind putting that dating profile together?
0: Oh, absolutely. And in fact, this is my favorite thing that I do with clients is putting their dating profile together. So there is science behind it. One of the things is that, um, men routinely read eye contact combined with a smile as a sign of interest and approachability and that appearing interested and approachable is a bigger draw in getting an approach than how good looking you are really and truly the smile and the eye contact need to be there they need to be there in your the pictures that you post online and especially those first two or three pictures in the order, you know, you don't need more than seven. A lot of sites allow you six or seven. Make sure the first two or three are headshots with you looking straight in the camera and smiling at a smile where your eyes are crinkling. But there's more to it. Most people, most of us we if you know, if you're ever online and you see these online quizzes, um, like BuzzFeed does a lot of online quizzes, my my late teenage son um, in in his late, my son in his late teens would show me all these quizzes and want to take them. Those quizzes are about you. People like answering questions about themselves. So another big tip that research would give is when you write a description of what, when you write your profile, write a description of what you're looking for, not who you are. Write about the person you're seeking, not about yourself. And a couple things will happen. Number one, People will find themselves thinking, huh, oh, no, I don't fit that. Oh, I do fit this. It'll be like a questionnaire. And you can actually frame it as a questionnaire if you want. It will get more attention than just writing about yourself. It will also get more attention than writing about yourself for a second reason. And that reason is you will stand out. Most people write about themselves. You will be writing about them. And this will will be a strong differentiator. Those two tips are huge. A third tip I would give is most people's standards for a mate are actually too low in many areas. They might be too high in a couple areas, but they're really too low in a lot of areas. And so having a strong sense of what is acceptable and mandatory to ask for and what is less acceptable or actually a hindrance to insist on, having that information in your hip pocket will allow you to write an ad that is more likely to garner good attention as opposed to being ignored well it's awful hard to be ignored and nobody
1: wants that that's that is for sure so I mean I guess if someone makes up their mind that they're ready to date is that the first thing they do is create a profile
0: actually I think the first thing they do is they have to get good with what their standards are and because if you think you're asking for something that is impossible, you won't insist on it. People really, before you go online or or start dating at all, I think it is really important to, to have defined what are your must-have standards and what are the things you want. They might be things you really, really, really want. But they're things that you could compromise on if this person was otherwise ideal for you. And I can tell you how to make those decisions if you'd like.
1: I'd love to hear that.
0: Yeah. So there are several steps to the process. And this is probably the most valuable work that I do with my clients is teach them how to do this and then how to apply it. But it's very difficult to succeed at online dating or at what I call being your own matchmaker, which is meeting people in real life through your social network. It's really hard to succeed without this initial step. So the first part of identifying what you have to have is brainstorming everything you would like. Don't think about whether you have to have it right now or not, just think of everything you would like. If you're having a hard time thinking about what you would like, think about what you don't like and put that down. So you might think about people you dated before where things didn't work out and you couldn't stand that they picked their nose and wiped it on their pants. And so you say, not a person who picks their nose and wipes it on their pants you can say what you don't want as well as what you don't do want that's step one step two is go back through this and put everything in positive language of what you want as opposed to what you don't want and that's because the brain and you probably already know this given your expertise the brain seeks out what we tell it and it doesn't filter out the word not very well so if you say not a hard drinker your brain thinks hard drinker just like if i say not a polar bear you brain now conjured up an image of a polar bear so you would say um, a brown bear or a black bear or you would say uh, drinks uh, one drink a week or something like that you would define what it is that's acceptable to you rather than unacceptable you would say what you have to say so I've had uh, I did another survey before my second full-length book which is I love factually for single parents and those dating them. I did another informal survey where I asked people, what's the one thing that you tolerated during dating your ex that you wish you hadn't? And every answer from men and women alike mapped onto a lack of kindness and respectfulness. So I can tell you for sure that one of the things that belongs on everyone's list is that your future partner treats you and all other people with kindness and respect no matter what kind of day they're having, no matter whether they're upset, and no matter whether the animal child or other person has power over them. All of us can be nice when the other person has power over us and our day is going well. The true test of character is when we've been disappointed and we haven't slept well and, uh, you know, our blood sugar's tanking. <laughs> this this would be a, a, a better test of, of how people behave in stressful situations, whether they're going to treat us well or not. So I know those belong on everyone's list. Um, so you, you put down everything that you do need, and I would encourage that to include... Um, not only kindness and respectfulness, but if they want the same kind of relationship you do and the same kind of family life, if you know you want to be a, a husband and a father or a mother and a wife, then you need someone who is looking for those things. And I can almost hear women saying, Yeah, right, guys aren't like that. Actually, they are. Um, not all of them are. And when they're in, you know, short, what, research calls short-term mating mode because men have a short-term and a long-term mating mode if they're in short-term mode then any discussion of the future like that is going to be a big turnoff. but you want to turn off people who don't want what you want that's okay so you can have that as one of your standards the third thing I encourage people to do having brainstormed and put everything in positive language of what they want is to uh, divide that list into must-haves and wants And the hardest part of this entire exercise is this part of the exercise. A lot of people are afraid to put on their must-haves list only the must-haves. They start saying, well, it has to be six feet tall. And I'll say, really, that's a must-have? Really and truly? Lee, did you know that in research around the world, 80% of women say that they must have a man who is six feet tall or taller, but the average height in the United States is about 5'9 to 5'10"? So this is leaving the vast majority of men out in the cold, which means the women are also out in the cold. Don't make something a must have that's not core to their actual function in your life. That would be a big, big clue. The way to tell that something's a must have is the following. This is your litmus. Go through every must have and ask yourself, if this person had everything else on my list, all of it, but they didn't have this one thing, would I really have to kick them to the curb real and truly? So if the answer is yes, it's a deal breaker, okay, then that belongs on your must-haves. But if the answer is, you know what, if this person was otherwise perfect, I really and truly could do without this, well, that's a really strong want. Well, you know, that's that's really
1: good advice. And that's that's an approach that I use with my clients on all the decisions that they make. Because we get confused when we have to make a decision on, well, I really want this. Do you really need that? Um, because there's a huge difference in what you want and what you need. And sometimes what we want in decision making on our jobs or our, you know, our future, it leads us down the wrong path. So I, th- I can definitely see that how that's very applicable to dating. Is there any Last point we want to make on this subject before we go to break.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I want you to do is go back through that list and put a check mark next to everything on your list that describes you. So if you said, I want a person who loves golden retrievers and you love golden retrievers, that's a check mark. What you'll find out is your in all likelihood is your standards are actually pretty good. To the extent people are asking for somebody like themselves, we know that those people are more likely to date more likely to get engaged, more likely to get married, more likely to be happily married, more likely to stay together for a lifetime. Your standards are just fine if you're asking for a match.
1: That's a really good point. That is a great point. So very quickly, I mean, to me, the standards, the way you describe them, it's almost talking, it relates to your core values. And there's probably a whole nother conversation we can have about that when we come back. But do you see just just curious to know do you relate those core values to those musts and wants
0: absolutely one of the biggest research findings is that people don't partner well if they have uh, strong differences on values but do you have to have everything exactly the same i think we should talk about that after the break
1: i think we should too
0: i think that's interesting we'll be back Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on TogiNet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years
1: frequently drive on a street named Cemetery Hill, which makes me wonder who got to name these streets anyway. Whoever named Psychopath Road in Michigan, for example, must have been off his cursive. I mean, who would ever want that for a mailing address? In
0: Alabama, there is a This Ain't It Road. I guess this is where a lot of lost drivers end up. Personally, I would like to live on Slim Bottoms Road
1: in Mount Vernon, New York, even though some might say that would constitute a bit of a teradiddle. That's a little white lie. So what do you call the business of naming things? onomastics finally there's little schmuck road in indiana and cannibal road in california i'm sure that keeps people
0: from trespassing i'm carolyn davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app too funny for words
1: we're back now here's your host lee richardson back and we're going to pick up right where we left off and that's talking about musts and wants and core values and how all of those
0: interrelate. So what do you think? Well I you know of course I agree with what the science says about this and it really couldn't be more clear that A value, first of all, is something that you really care about to the point where it's core to who you are and that we need to have a partner who at a minimum supports our values and at a maximum actually matches our values. So what I mean by that is, for example, um, my ex and I, who I have a lot of respect for, um, it didn't work out because of his drinking, but my ex and I, um, he was really into wildlife conservation and volunteering at wild animal parks and raptor centers and that kind of thing and i donate money to those causes and i parted with him every saturday for 7 years he was gone from the time to wake up until at night late at night or midway through the evening. And then he was working full time. So, you know, I was giving up a full day together so that he could pursue this passion of his. So in other words, I supported his values, even though I wasn't lockstep with him on it. I didn't go and volunteer at the same thing. I did other things. I Gave money, but I and I gave up my time with him. That was my sacrifice, but I didn't participate at the same level. It's it, I give that example because sometimes people get so hung up on having someone who shares their values that they think it means having everything just the same. I um, my religion is is I'm a Unitarian Universalist, and um, my my partner did not he he didn't ascribe to any religious philosophy. But I gave money to the UUs, I went every Sunday, I sang in the choir. He didn't go to those things unless uh, it was a special event and I asked him to, but he also didn't complain about it. We supported each other in our values. So I want to emphasize that Um, You need to have someone who supports values at a level that you can live with. Uh, We had the same political views, if that makes sense. This is actually a big thing right now. Sometimes people will tell themselves, oh, it doesn't really matter. Right now, most people see their politics as a a litmus test for their worldview. Um, And so for most people, that actually is quite important. So the key here is know thyself. And find a match at a level that makes sense for you. They don't have to match you in every particular about your values, but you should feel that they are not opposing you. For example, if you are staunchly progressive and your would-be partner is staunchly conservative and you're always going to cancel each other at the polls and you're going to have fights on social media, a lot of people find that's not sustainable. On the other hand, if you are both staunchly progressive and one of you makes calls to political leaders five days a week and the other one says thank you for doing that but does not participate well thanking you for doing that might be enough for you
1: that's a good point you know that that is a good point we all have different levels of expectations and we expect different things so just to kind of you know i'm going back to the dating profile and i can't tell you how I've had a couple of clients say, well, I just, you know, put a picture of myself in my bikini as my picture, and that's going to get me exactly what I want. And my inner voice says, I'm not so sure about that. What does your inner voice say?
0: (laughs) Well, my inner voice says, uh, there's research that shows that if you put a picture up of you in your bikini, you're going to get a lot of attention, mostly from men who are looking to hit it and quit it you will not get the long-term mating crowd that way. There was a, a famous study done. Um, I call it Butterface. I can't remember that <laughs> based on a Seinfeld uh, show from a long time ago. Um, where I can't remember the exact name of the study, but the concept was that men were asked whether they were currently looking for a long-term partner or a hookup. And then they were given uh, uh, a selection of photos of women to look at. And they were told you can either see these women's faces or you can see their bodies. You can't see both. And the men in short-term mating mode wanted to look at women's bodies if they only had one choice. And the men in long-term mating mode wanted to see the face. There is a lesson in this for us, which is your profile pictures, while you need to have one or two of them that show um, your full body, if they reveal a lot of skin, There are numerous studies showing that that hooks into short-term mating psychology, and it is actually an active turnoff for men who want a long-term relationship. If you want a long-term relationship, the bikini picture is extremely unlikely to get that for you. The picture that is more likely to get that for you is, as we talked about, have two or three headshots where you're smiling directly into the camera with a real genuine eye-crinkling smile, and then have a couple full body shots, but you need to be fully clothed in these. Where, you know, your clothes are tight enough where they can see your shape, but not so tight that they can see every, everything. And the clothes should cover the vast majority of your skin. Men in long-term mating mode in the United States and in many other cultures have been found to strongly prefer a woman who is showing that um, she's not giving off strong signals that men routinely perceive as uh, as being sexually available for anyone who comes along. She's giving selection selective signals and that would indicate being fully clothed. So, and, and even then, even if you put up the right pictures, which yes, men are visual creatures and the right pictures are really important. And I am constantly helping people pick out the right pictures and helping them to know what that's going to consist of. Even if you do that, I can't, emphasize strongly enough to you how important it is to have good content that is about the person you're looking for. And I'll tell you, one of the real stumbling blocks to that is women and men alike will say to me, I'm writing something so specific, I'm afraid I'm going to scare a lot of people away. I want your profile to be such a strong call to the right kind of person, not just the right person. There's more than one right person but to the right kind of person that when one of those people reads your profile, they can't wait to respond to you because what they think is, Holy moly, this person just described me. Exactly. I have found my person. There you
1: go. You know, that's, I think that's what everybody wants is they want that connection. They want to feel like there truly is, and they connect on different levels. So, As you work with people, I mean, it sounds like you work with them in the beginning on putting their profile together. Then how does that, how does that progress?
0: Well, I work with, with people at all stages of their relationships, but a huge part of my work is helping people get ready for love. And part of that is helping them clear out their thought processes that are getting in their way. And part of that is helping them, uh, update their processes for actually attracting a partner. And then, uh, then there's the strategy of, okay, I've put my information out there. Now, what do I do with it? How do I talk to somebody in the initial stages of dating? And especially how do I know who to forward a relationship with and who to cut out? And of course, how to cut out, you know, I mean, we've already talked about how do you tell someone you're not going to see them anymore. If it's the very, very beginning stage of your relationship, you just say, I had a nice time, but I just didn't feel the connection. I mean, that's the easy way to put it. And, um, you know, you can, you can say, if somebody's writing to you on a, an app or a site, you can say, you know, um, you seem like a really nice person, but I, I just am not sensing there's enough of a match to move forward, but I wish you well on your search. Those are nice ways to say no. But how do you know to say no? I'm going to give you some rules of thumb right now that are really going to hopefully help you. A lot of people right now are looking for instant chemistry. And a lot of people on dating apps, you know, a lot of the apps don't really give you information enough information about someone, they pretty much only put pictures. And then you're given a few lines to say something about you or the person you're looking for. But there's not a lot of information. I really like long format, like, okay, Cupid, match, those kind of eHarmony, the kind of places where you can put a lot of information out there. But if you've decided you don't want to do that, you want to do one of the swipe right apps instead. What I would tell you is that you need to make sure that very quickly, after the two of you have swiped right, that you share the kind of thing you would have shared in longer format. You say something like, I have written something with my future partner in mind, and I wonder if if you would be willing to look at it and say how you think you match up with it. And then then they say yes, and you send it to them, and then hopefully they respond in detail to that. You want to look for um, someone who is kind and respectful and who has taken your effort seriously in the sense that they respond almost line by line to your ad. And, and you won't get a lot of people who will, by the way. That's okay. You're not looking for a lot of people. You're really ultimately looking for one, right? So uh, you're looking for someone who takes that very seriously and who is a good match on those levels. Then you set up a phone call and please not not a text message volley because I know... T- I actually really enjoy texting myself. But um, when you're first getting to know someone, you need the tone of voice. And you also need something called high-cost mating signals. Text messages tend to consist of verbiage that could be used with dozens of women or men. This person doesn't have to think about you at all. They could be um, communicating with lots and lots of other people in the same way. A phone call means you get to hear them think on their feet. It takes up enough of their time that they can't do this with dozens of people and it shows a, a certain seriousness of intent and purpose. So while you're on that phone call, you should be asking the hard questions. Lee, do your cli- do your clients ever tell you about questions that um, that they want to know about a partner but they're afraid to ask? Well, they ask me about questions.
1: Is, is it okay to ask this? Is it okay to ask this? And my response is, are you comfortable asking that? Because if, if it's you're uncomfortable asking it, then it's not going to be perceived. It's going to be perceived with stress. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think it's really important to ask the tough questions as soon as possible. Certainly before... Um, bef- here's, the, here's the order that I know for sure really helps people establish a lasting relationship. Meet someone that you feel some level of attraction to although be wary of the instant chemistry thing. You know, it's interesting. Studies are now showing that on the, the Tinder type apps, the, the swipe right apps, men and women are both swiping right on people who are about 10% better looking than they themselves are. That doesn't work well because in the real world, people tend to cheat on or abandon partners who are not about as good looking as them. So, uh, You need to actually be swiping right on people who look like you, not who look better than you. That's a really, that's
1: a good point.
0: Really true. Uh, The whole, the whole, everybody's going for somebody 10% better looking that, that is a path to pain. I can tell you empirically for absolute sure. It doesn't work out well. So don't do that. Um, But then, then another thing is you need to ask the questions. The question, uh, what do you want in your romantic life? Is an easy question to ask early in the relationship in the sense that it shows that you have confidence because you're able to ask the question. It shows that uh, you probably know what you want and that you're willing to walk away from somebody who wants something substantially different. That question, and there's never of course been a perfume called desperation and there never will be. The question smacks of desperation after you've had sex and after you're emotionally involved. If you say, you know, are you looking to get married someday? after you've already gotten deeply involved well now you've got a lot writing on that question if you ask that question um i have some people put it in their profile you know that they're looking for a long-term relationship that leads to marriage and family it is perfectly fine to have that in your profile if that's your truth and you want it sooner than later screen for it right away the important thing is that you frame the question such that this is about your general goals you're not proposing marriage to this person right now, because um, obviously that would come off as, is not very psychologically stable. So I'm going to give you a formula for how to ask almost any tough question. All right. Yeah. yeah. And it goes like this. I know we're just getting to know each other. Um, but I don't find that it makes a lot of sense to get deeply involved with people where we see life really differently. I'm a Democrat. What, what's your political leaning? Or I know that we're just getting to know each other. It doesn't make, and, and so this might seem kind of like uh, an intense question this early, but I just don't find that it makes a lot of sense to get in deep with a situation that is unworkable. I live in city X and you live in city Y. I'm really not open to relocating. What are your thoughts? If this worked out, what would be your take on that? I Notice that I'm just laying it out there. Oh, I am, definitely. But I'm not saying to the person, I want to marry you or we have to do everything the same way or you have to move here. I'm saying this is important to me. If this worked out, what would your thoughts be? Just lay it right out there. People perceive this as confident. They don't perceive it as clingy because it's not clingy. It would be clingy if you said, I want to get married and have a family right now. And um, uh, gosh, I, I've gotten so used to doing this, it's hard for me to sound clingy anymore. <laughs> but if, if you said, I want to get married, what about you? Well, now it sounds like you just proposed to them. That's very, very off-putting and scary. But if you say something like, Look, I, I know we barely know each other, but I've just I I've been dating long enough that I'm very clear about my values and what I want in the future, and it doesn't make sense for me to go too far down the road with someone who wants something really different. I'm wondering what your ideal future relationship looks like to you. Now, that way you haven't exactly tipped your hand. You haven't told them what to say. They then get the opportunity to respond, and here's here are a few possible responses they might have. Well, I don't have to know that, do I? That's one. And the answer is they don't have to. But if you're really clear and this person is past the age of like 25 or so and they don't know that answer, that's probably a no for you. You're looking for someone who's clear also. If they say, well, I yeah, I do. I, I want a long-term relationship that, you know, I want something that's going to be permanent. You can say, oh, that's awesome. Me too. What are your thoughts about um family in the future? What are your thoughts about, and, and you can say, I'm not asking you to have kids with me. I'm saying, if this worked out, what ideally, what do you want? And people who are honest will tell you, and people who aren't will kind of flop and flail around, and that's good information for you to have also. You, if you're clear, you deserve someone clear.
1: I agree with that. I, I definitely agree with that. So understanding and and, you know you're very much putting yourself out there but in a genuine way Mm -hmm. not in a judgmental way but just in a genuine way and with your experience is that perceived well all the time
0: well nothing's perceived well all the time because keep in mind that when you're out there dating whether you're meeting people through friends and family or meeting them in real life or through groups that you're involved in or online no matter how you meet people most of them will not be right for you so if you ask a serious question and this other person is looking for something that's non-committal and they want to have a situationship instead of a relationship or they want to uh n- they don't want to define how that goes in their life and that that maps on to something called attachment style a lot of times which we can get into to today or another time, but let's let's jump into that because if they're not clear, they're not gonna like it. And you know, that's good information though. What I want to, a kernel of truth I'd like everyone to take away from this is be clear about what you need. Ask clear questions that give you an opportunity to get information. The information you get is valuable no matter what the information is. It tells you whether this person is capable of meeting your needs. And that is the big question you should be asking yourself all the time while you're getting to know someone, not whether you can turn yourself into what they want, but whether they can be who you need. Okay. That's that,
1: that makes sense to me. You know, I see a lot of codependency developing relationships and I wonder when does it start?
0: It's very interesting. So I'm going to pose a question to you and I'm going to ask you how you think Healthy, happy, thriving couples answer this question. This question has been asked in, in surveys and studies. Are, is your partner's happiness your responsibility? Or is is your partner's happiness a big responsibility of yours? No. Okay. So what's really interesting is happy couples say yes.
1: Well, that's interesting because I've been married 41 years. And- and, and we're pretty happy. So, I, you know, I think it's but I think part of that is, is that with that length of time, you know, you've after 41 years, you've raised kids together, you've started businesses together and you're secure enough with each other to not feel. I mean, I, I just feel like I'm, I can't make I can't make anyone happy unless I'm happy myself.
0: So that is very. It's uh, your mileage may vary, but that while that is a very common thing that our current cultural teachings emphasize, people who are secure attachers—that is, people whose habitual way of being in relationships is calm, clear, close—and and and, uh, I'm forgetting the fourth C right now. But secure attachers believe that their partner's happiness is a big responsibility of theirs. I don't mean like they're saddled with it. I mean that they want to make their partner happy and they make it a big priority to do what they can toward that end. They understand that no one can totally make another person happy, but at the same time, they also understand that, in fact, the way that we behave in our relationships really does have an impact on whether our partner's life is good and secure attachers believe that it is a big responsibility of theirs to make sure that that experience is positive but see I, I feel like
1: wanting to make somebody happy absolutely I want to make somebody happy I want to make my husband happy but I don't feel like to me I, and maybe it's just interpretation of words but I don't feel like it's my responsibility I, it's just something I want to do mm-hmm.
0: well but so I don't have to do well, it's always optional, but the thing is secure attachers avail themselves of that option almost always they they really try to do that, and they can't always do it, but that's that's a big priority of theirs and um most people think that that sounds codependent, but the people who uh, in studies tend not to believe that tend to um not have a secure as secure a relationship. Let me say to the extent that people um, do not take responsibility for taking care of themselves emotionally and physically and all that kind of thing, they don't do their own work and they just wait for someone to do all of it for them. Obviously that's not healthy. And that's not what I'm talking about here, but to the extent that partners think that their partner's happiness is really their partner's responsibility and that, um, that relationships shouldn't constrain people and that independence is more important than interdependence, those couples tend to be pretty unhappy.
1: Well, I do think there is, you know, there's, you have a lot of research and a lot of study behind what we've talked about. We've got just a few minutes left. Is there any other type of relationship that we should touch on?
0: I think so. I think it's really important to understand that when you're selecting a partner, since that's primarily what we're talking about today, that you make sure that their past isn't going to ruin your future. The biggest predictor of what someone will do is what they've done in a similar past circumstance. So, for example, if you find out that the person you're dating has cheated on everyone they've ever dated, they're going to do it to you, too.
1: Yeah, that's a good
0: point. They are. I mean, we do have a crystal ball. It's called the past. Now, do people change? Yes. If this person cheated once, it was a long, long time ago—like ten years, five years ago. They felt bad about it. They—they they didn't get caught. Um, they actually either confessed or just stopped the relationship on their own, um, and they changed their behavior going forward. And never did it again. That person's probably a safe bet. But. If they have a past, for example, with cutting lots of people out of their lives and just never speaking to them again, that's going to happen to you too. Here's the rule of thumb. The worst way your partner has treated someone else, it's very likely that they're going to treat you unless they've seen the error of their ways and changed and changed for a substantial period of time. So never neglect understanding that their past usually is their future. That's one of the laws of psychology. It's the single biggest predictor of behavior is past behavior in a relevant circumstance, especially if that behavior was recent. You also want to uh, know what your own triggers are. For me, I've lost two spouses to drug and alcohol abuse. I'm not going to be with somebody who abuses drugs and alcohol. I've had a lot of clients who have said, well, if somebody had a past with abuse of drugs and alcohol, you know, that wouldn't be a big thing for me as long as they were going to AA or whatever. I'm not saying that everyone needs to find that to be a trigger. I'm saying that you need to know what your triggers are and you need to find someone who does not open your uh, your baggage and exploit it. You need to find someone who helps you feel safe. Safety I think, is as important as love.
1: I think that is a very important note and I appreciate you making that, particularly as we get towards the end of the show. But for people out there that want to learn more about what you do, because I do know that you do some coaching. I know you offer a lot of information online. How do they find you?
0: Sure. They can go to lovefactually, with an F, lovefactually.co, and they can find out and get free stuff too. Um, They can get free samples of all my books. They can see where to approach me for coaching. They can email me. Uh, If they click on the coaching link, they're going to be taken to another website where I've got tons of free articles and podcast appearances and all of that. And uh, just tons of free stuff there. And I answer all the emails I receive for free. That's awesome.
1: And I just want to repeat, because here in the States, it's all about .com So i just like to repeat that that's lovefactually.co for those of you that are listening. Absolutely. Thank you so much for emphasizing that. Well, I appreciate your time today. I I truly do. And it's such an interesting thing to think about because when I think of dating, I think about love. And now I've reframed that. And when I think about dating, I think about what's going on in the brain. It really makes me wonder.
0: Yes. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio.